Amen. Thank you, Noah. That's one of my favorite songs and uh, just a declaration that no matter what happens, no matter what season of life we're in, we will still praise the Lord through it. Uh, take your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter number 9, Mark chapter number 9. Uh, while you're turning, let me just uh, say thank you for those who served yesterday, volunteered. Uh, we had a funeral service yesterday for Brother Ray Drumheller, and uh, Brother Ray passed away a couple weeks ago, and uh, we had the memorial service yesterday and had a full house, and uh, were able to share the gospel, and uh, just all kinds of good comments on, and thanks from the family, and uh, please continue to pray for Miss Mary Alice and let her know that we as a church family are going to be continuing to pray for her as the days and weeks go on and just let her know that she's not alone. So if you see her out and about or you see her here in church, please let her know uh, that you're praying for her. And then uh, we had a basketball game yesterday morning. I highlighted last week, uh, yesterday morning, we had a, a, a basketball game, our third and fourth graders for Augusta Christian Academy. And it was a tight game, but we still won. And so that's the point. And so our boys' basketball team is now 4-0 and on the season, undefeated. And we're excited for them. And uh, I'm telling you, man, some of the kids are awesome basketball players, but some of the parents are more intense. And so... <laughs> You feel like this is high school basketball, like high school rivalry. And so I'm sitting there like I need a Xanax or something to help me. And, uh, but just an awesome, awesome thing. And uh, if you're not familiar with our Christian school that we have right down the road, uh, Augusta Christian Academy, we'd love to give you some information after the service about it. Have you ever been embarrassed, whether in public by something you did do or you didn't do or you couldn't do? You know, one of those finest moments that all of your friends maybe still joke about today. You know, they point and say, remember that time when? And you, yeah, I remember that, yeah. And so we think about that, but what about when one of those moments is something you couldn't do something that you thought you were going to be able to do? What if one of those moments is one of these moments like the disciples had in Mark chapter number 9? Jesus had just been on the mountain at the beginning of the chapter with three of the disciples, and they had seen the glory of God right in front of them, Jesus in his resurrected state. They saw Moses and Elijah. But when they came back to their counterparts, the nine disciples who stayed behind, they encountered major problems. There was drama going on, and they were faced with a very public problem. And it's a problem that we still face even today in our lives. It's called unmet expectations. You ever been there? Unmet expectations. And that's what Jesus and these three disciples walk right into. And, but what do we do when people have unmet expectations of us that we just can't fulfill? Well, how do we process that? What is our plan? And we see that mapped out in Mark chapter number 9. Let's begin reading in verse number 14. Mark chapter 9 verse 14. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him, Jesus. Verse 16, and he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Hey, what's the problem? What's all the commotion? What's the big deal? Why, why have you drawn this crowd, and why are you asking questions of my followers? Let's pray and then we'll dive right into the text. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the music and the fact that, yes, we will praise your name. Yes, we will. Even in the lowest valleys uh, for all our days, yes, I will. We will praise you. Lord, help that to be our testimony and our life song. And Lord, I ask that you please speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, from this passage of Scripture, help us to 
see you at work in the lives of the disciples. Help us to see you at work in the life of this man who comes with a problem that he couldn't fix and the disciples couldn't even fix. Lord, help us to see in those times of unmet expectations where our hope is found. Lord, I ask that you please speak to my heart. Please cleanse me of any sin unconfessed to help me to be clean as I preach your word. And then, Lord, if there's one here today or watching online that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, please draw them to yourself today. Help them to see you high and lifted up, Lord, in your rightful place. And, Lord, help us to point people to you. We love you, and thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down number one, the inability. The inability. While these men had seen heaven come down to earth, they could not stay on the mountaintop. And it's the same way with us today. You know, we come into church, we get all energized, we get excited. and Man, we're, woo, yeah, high-fiving, chest-bumping, we're all excited. But then we have to go out there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, You think about, man... People say, man, this is awesome. And man, God met with us. And then you go to work on Monday and people are like, what is wrong with you? You know, you get that feeling and maybe a feeling of, you know, pastor, can I just live here? You know, uh, can I just bring my pillow and sleep on the pews, uh, you know, on the chairs? But you think about they had to go back to the real world. They could not stay on the mountain time. And while you and I might have moments where we're excited and enlightened and we're on fire for the Lord, let's not forget that we've been placed in a very dark world to be the light. And to let what we experience, what we take in on Sundays, be shared on Monday through Saturday. That's our purpose. But we see the inability, and that starts with the scribes in verse 14 through 16. Jesus and his men walk into a crowd that's questioning the disciples. The other nine men who are left behind, which leads Jesus to say in verse 16, what question you with them? Why are you questioning them? It's the same example as Mark chapter number 4 and verse 35. And it says, In the same day when the evil was come, he, Jesus, saith unto them, Let us pass over to the other side. Mark chapter 6 and verse 45, it says that Jesus constrained or he pushed his disciples. He compelled them to get into a ship and go to the other side. What's significant about both of those passages of Scripture, both of those verses, is Jesus sent them away knowing that they were going to encounter a storm. Knowing that they were going to face hardship. And Jesus sent them anyway. But here in chapter 9 in our text, Jesus left town knowing that a storm was coming. He left them alone. They would face intense scrutiny and he wouldn't be there with them. How would they respond? You ever felt like that? You ever felt all alone? Like, hey, I'm out here, God, you, you got to do something. You know, I, I'm waiting. Uh, I'm waiting. You know, uh, some of y'all get the movie reference. But, uh, but they were being questioned by the scribes. They were being interrogated. They were outnumbered, outgunned, being outperformed. The scribes were people who spent their entire life studying, memorizing the Scripture. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They could quote major pieces of the law. That was their job. And Jesus left nine disciples, nine followers of Jesus, with people who knew more about Scripture than they did. That doesn't seem fair. The word that he uses when he says, why question you with them, is the word, the Greek word, sudzateo. And it means to investigate or to examine. These men, these scribes, are literally poking holes in the faith of the disciples. And they have no 
recourse. The scribes were doing this. And maybe you, like they did that day, I'm sure, felt like failures. Maybe that's been you in your life. Maybe you feel like a failure. Like I'm never going to have the right words. I'm never going to have the right answer. I'm never going to be good enough. You know that in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 and 3, Solomon gives us a great insight to that feeling. And he says, The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. But then in verse number 3, it says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Now, we all understand that you don't say something without thinking about it first, right? Even if you don't think about it very long. You still think about something before you say it. So if our thoughts are established by committing our works to the Lord, then the things that I say will be what He wants me to say, not the things I want to say. Does that make sense? Commit our works to the Lord. He establishes my thoughts so that when my answer comes out my mouth, it's what He wants me to say and not what I want to say. And that is what they should have done. But that's not what they did do. But when we invest our energy into following Him and committing our works to Him, He will show us what to say in the moment. In those moments where we feel like, I don't know what to say here, He'll give us in the moment if we'll commit our way to Him. The scribes are poking holes, but then number two, we see the situation that's developed. The story is very simple. We see in verse 17, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, he foameth, and gnashes with his teeth, and pineth away. This man has a big problem. This man has a spiritual need that he can't do anything about. He had lost confidence in the disciples. The crowd is listening and all of the conversation is now centered on this one man who has a son that is demon-possessed. He has a son that has a spiritual being living inside of him. It's called a dumb spirit, meaning that the demonic force inside this little boy's body had rendered him mute. He could not speak. But while he wasn't vocal, the spirit was very violent. And the father says everywhere he takes him, he leads him, he tears him, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth. We see later in a couple of verses that several times throughout his life, the spirit tried to drown the boy or throw him into a live fire trying to kill his body. This is a very serious situation. Try to put yourself in the position of the dad. Your entire life, you try to protect your children, knowing that there are external forces that you can't control. There are internal forces at play that you can't see, but you still try your best to protect your children at all costs, knowing what is at stake. Maybe you feel like this with your child. Maybe you feel like, man, there's some things going on in their life that I just can't do anything about, Pastor. Maybe there's things I'm trying to control the outside, but there's still a battle raging within that I can't see and I can't touch. Now, you might protect them for a while externally, but the battle is still raging. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I understand the context is for the dads, but if there is no dad present, mom, that's your job. Grandma, grandpa, that's your job. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
Sadly, there are a lot of parents who say, you know, Pastor, I just don't want to brainwash my children and overwhelm them. I want them to get to where they get old enough to make their own choices, and then if they want to follow Jesus, that'll be their choice. You think the world has that mentality? You think the world is waiting on them to get to age where they can make their own choices? Not on your life. They're starting early. They're starting young. And let me just say lovingly but directly, you better be brainwashing your kid. You better be influencing them for Christ. Because your time is very limited. Your resources are limited. And your time that you invest in them for Jesus, I would much rather them get too much Jesus than too much of the world. I would rather them say, every time mom and dad talk to me, they talk to me about Jesus, but they prepared me for the real world because I knew what I was going to face when I left home. You better start brainwashing them because the world is not waiting. They are brainwashing your children and many times without your knowledge or consent. You need to be ready. And we can't measure our success. You might say, well, you know, pastor, uh, my kid didn't turn out right. You can't measure your success on whether or not how they turn out, whether or not you're a good parent. John MacArthur said, if we measure our success as parents solely by what our children become, there is no inviolable guarantee in Scripture that we will experience absolute success on those terms. The true measure of success for Christian parents is the parent's own character. To the degree that we have followed God's design for parenting, we have succeeded as parents before God. Do you realize that God doesn't reward based on the end result? You ever think about that? God is not concerned with how much you do. God is concerned whether or not you're faithful. God could care less if you lead a million people to Christ. Are you faithful to do the task that he's called you to do? I'm not saying that those things are unimportant. They are of eternal value. But let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's realize that our responsibility is to be faithful first. Faithful. Remember, the greatest thing that you can ever be said about you, have said about you by the Lord, is that you are a faithful servant. That is the greatest title that we can ever reach. The scribes poking holes, the situation that's unfolding. But then in verse 18, we see the shortage. The end of the verse, the man says, And I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. And they could not. As bad as this situation was, it compounds when those who knew how to help couldn't. This man comes to the followers of Jesus, the ones who walked with God. And they were helpless because of their own personal failures. But how is that even possible? In Mark chapter number seven, or Mark chapter six, Jesus sends them out two by two, and the Bible says that he gave them power over unclean spirits. This man expected the disciples to have the same power that Jesus did. Think about people who come to church and expect to get help because they've heard about it, they've read about it, they've seen it in the lives of others, and they show up to a church and they leave unchanged because the Followers that say they follow Jesus are powerless or are not really following him. 
You know, one of the signs of the last days is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. When it talks about people who name the name of Christ, and it says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And then the damning statement, from such turn away. Hey, church, we don't want to be a church that looks like God is working. We want to be a church where God is working. We don't want to just look the part. That doesn't change lives. We want to be the part. We want to be a place where people come in and they feel welcome and received. We want to be a place where it doesn't matter what you look like or how you dress. We want to be a place where people come in and they hear the gospel preached, not some performance-based ritualistic religion. We want to be the place where people leave and say, not, man, what a great story, what a great illustration, what a great crowd. We want people to leave this place and say, what a great God. That's what our goal should be. Not a place that just looks the part, but a place that is focused on being the part. I love what that one philosopher said. God didn't create human doings. He created human beings. And in our walk with Christ, it's not about doing. It's about being. Love God. Love others. Be what he calls us to be. The inability. These disciples, man, What's going on, Jesus? Why can't we do this stuff? But then we see number two, the inconsistency. Verse 19, he answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation. I can almost see Jesus spinning on a dime and rebuking the disciples after hearing this testimony from this man who said, I brought my son to your disciples and asked them if they'd help me, and they couldn't. And Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? This is a brazen criticism for those who had been entrusted with special God-given ability. Jesus knew that his ministry is coming to an end. He's already been with them three years at this point. And if they were going to start living out of the power flowing within them, it had to start now. Couldn't wait till he was gone. They had to start being who he designed them to be. We see the reasoning first in verse 19 through 22. He said, how long shall I be with you? I'm not going to be much longer, guys. How long shall I suffer you? How long am I going to have to do this? Bring him unto me. I'm glad that Jesus said, hey, when all else fails, you can come to me. You can come to me. And in our life today, we may say, man, I've got all these problems and I've tried religion and I've tried friends and I've tried relationships and I've tried addictions and I've tried focusing on my job and my career and I've tried all these things. But Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's the one who is the hope and peace that we need in troubled times. It's him. It's not all these superficial things. We see the reasoning. Jesus gets more information in verse number 20. He starts asking these questions. When he saw him, they bring the boy to Jesus, and immediately the Spirit throws the boy on the ground. He begins wallowing, foaming, all of these different things. And Jesus says in verse 21, how long has this been going on? How long has it been since this has happened? And the father says of a child, this, this is something that we've been living with for years. This wasn't just something that had just happened yesterday. This is an ongoing daily routine. I don't think Jesus is asking for information. I think Jesus is asking so that people will see desperation. I think sometimes Jesus puts us in situations in our personal lives for us to see how desperate we need him. How desperately we need him. 
say, Pastor, that doesn't seem fair. Well, guess what? Life isn't fair. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus put us on notice when he said, For without me, you can do nothing. Maybe it's to show the people that this is something that the only solution is Jesus. And regardless of the reasoning for the question, this is something that only Jesus can handle. You know, maybe that's your situation today. Maybe that's your need. Maybe it's marital. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's something going on at work or at home with your family, with your spouse, with your kids. No matter what it is, Jesus is waiting for you to hand him your problem, your situation, your struggle. If it is, will you bring that need to him? Say, Pastor, I've tried, but are you still bringing it back to him? Hey, Lord, I I need to pick this. I need to leave this here. I can't pick it up. Maybe you brought it to him and you picked it back up. You prayed about it and said, hey, Lord, I'm going to leave this right here and I'm going to leave it here at the altar. As soon as you get up to go back to your seat, you pick it up and take it back to your seat with you. Thinking that you have some kind of external power that you can fix the problem greater than he can. You know, maybe, you know, if, if he's God and we're not, then wouldn't we want him to do his work on his time instead of ours? Wouldn't we want him to do the work that we're praying for the way he does? Now, this young man most likely had scars all over his body. Uh, all of these reminders on the, outfect, uh, uh, on the outside of the effect that the demon had had on the inside. All this going on. And you and I carry scars in our lives as well. They might not be seen. Maybe someone said something to us years ago and we're still struggling with it. Maybe someone did something to us tragically years ago in our past and and we just can't get over that. We bear those scars, those burdens, those hardships, those demons that we're fighting on the inside. Jesus is still the answer for whatever it is we need. He is the hope that we find. We see not only the reasoning, but we see the reliance. Verse 23, Jesus said, if thou canst believe, I love this, all things are possible to him that believeth. The father asked for compassion to be shown in verse 22. Oh Lord, uh, just show compassion on us. And I love the contrast that Jesus shows. It's not love that you need. It's faith that you need. All things are possible to him that believeth. It's not love It's not a question of can Jesus do it, but do you believe that Jesus can do it? See, Jesus is love. Yes, God is love. But it's not just enough to say, God loves me. I'm good. Hey, you've got to exercise some faith in the matter. God loves you enough to send you his son, a savior. What are you going to do about it? We don't become Christians by default. Just because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world doesn't mean that it's automatically applied to your account. You have to ask him to save you. You have to ask him to forgive you. Remember, this man had a great faith that was shaken by those people who said they were followers of Jesus. He brought them, and they couldn't do anything. It's a great reminder for us not to set our eyes on those who say that they follow Jesus but rather look to Jesus as our source. Remember Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord to put confidence in man. Jeremiah 17, verse 7, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. Hey, I love serving people, ministering to people, but please, I don't want you to put me on your pedestal. 
hey, I would much rather you put Jesus on the pedestal than put your preacher on the pedestal. Jesus is the one who deserves the praise. Jesus is the one who deserves our love and attention and commitment. It's not the pastor. At the end of the day, we're all made of the same stuff. We're all flesh. We're all bones. The man replies and says, I believe, but, get this, verse 24, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Isn't that a perfect picture of our lives? We go back and forth from faith and doubt. Back and forth, back and forth. Hey, Lord, I believe, but there's just some times where I just wonder if you're going to do this. Lord, I believe. I've heard the stories. I've seen you work in the past, but man, this is now. And I'm just not sure that the Lord's going to come through this time. That's our lives. But remember, the God of the Bible is the same God you and I pray to every day. The God who parted the Red Sea, the God who came through for the Israelites, the God who sent down fire for Elijah, that's the same God that we pray to. He didn't die and we got a new God. It's the same God, the same one who delivers. The battle of our lives is faith versus doubt. We believe in Jesus, but can he come through? We still have those moments of doubt. Elizabeth Elliot said, Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Have you planted a seed of faith in a field of doubt? Do you realize that you're never going to get any fruit from anything you plant if you're constantly moving it from place to place? You're not going to get fruit if you take this seed that you've planted and you pick it up and you put it here and you take it up and you don't allow those roots to form in one place and go deep. You're never going to see fruit until you plant the seed and you leave it there. You have to leave that seed and let it grow. I want to illustrate that this morning. My daughter, youngest daughter, is doing a science experiment at our house. and uh, You'll see in this box is a bunch of seeds. You'll see it on the screen uh, here in just a second. But all kinds of seeds that she planted on Just a plain piece of uh, napkin, a cloth. She took all these little radish seeds and she put them and she's been marking the development of them. But these seeds will never grow and bear fruit on this paper towel. It'll never happen. Why? Because it's shallow. There's no depth. There's no soil. There, There is no depth of these seeds because there is no soil for it to be planted in. So many of these seeds have died. Many of these seeds have already shown evidence that they're never going to grow. But she has some seeds here that she has taken from this shallow cloth and she's actually put in soil and she's got these little bitty growths now. She's got little bitty green sprouts of radishes growing. But in each one of these canisters, there is only an inch to an inch and a half of soil. She's not going to get full-grown radishes out of this little plant. This has to be taken and transported into deeper soil because your fruit will only grow as deep as the root is planted. You know, this is the story of our Christian lives. We expect full-grown fruit with only this much faith. We expect to get great fruit and great results from God when we say, hey, you know what? this this is not working, it's not growing fast enough, I'm going to take this and I'm going to pick up this seed and I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to bring it over here 
And I'm going to plant this into my relationships with people at work. And then I'm going to see fruit. And when I don't see fruit, oh, you know, I'll take my seed and I'll bring it over here. And I'm going to plant it over here in the church. And I'm going to do and do and do. And I'm going to do all these things. And then I'm going to see fruit. And then when I don't see fruit, I'm, nope, you know, I'm going to pick this up and I'm going to go over here. And I'm going to spend more time with my spouse. And then I'm going to see fruit. And then when that doesn't happen, I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go spend more time with my kids. And when I do that, I'm going to see fruit. All the while, our seed has not grown at all. Because we're not leaving it in the ground long enough to see any fruit. Because we're not leaving it in the ground long enough, here it is, for the root to get established. You know, in our Christian lives, we come to the altar and we pray. And we get up and go back to our seat and say, yeah, God's probably not going to do anything about that prayer request. We haven't left it in the ground long enough for it to take hold. We need to take that seed of faith. And yes, we might have a field of doubt. But we need to take that seed of faith and plant it and let it grow. And let those roots take hold. And we see, and it might not happen overnight. These little guys didn't come up overnight either. But letting that root take hold and we start to see little bitty evidences of fruit. Now, granted, we don't have radishes yet. But we've got evidence that They're on the way. Hey, in your life, do you just need to see evidence that it's on the way? Do you need to see evidence that your fruit has taken hold and there's evidence of growth? That won't happen unless you leave the seed in the ground. But if you're constantly moving it from place to place, hey, what good does it do to carry around a seed or a plant if you won't plant it and wait for God to bring the fruit of your labor? What good does it do? How many of you know I could hold this for the rest of this thing's existence? I can water it right here on my hand. But we all know I'm never getting radishes because I'm not planting it in the ground. I'm not putting it in an environment where it's susceptible for growth. It matters whether or not you read the Scripture. It matters whether or not you pray. It matters whether or not you serve. It matters whether or not you go to church. It matters whether or not you're planted. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall distract them. Nothing shall knock them off course. But his his tree will be like it's planted by the rivers of water. That person who loves his law and meditates therein day and night and spends time with the Lord, that seed begins to grow. Why? Because it's planted. It's firm. Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, rooted and built up in Him. Not in people, in Him. Hey, I don't want you to be, I love you, I don't want you to be rooted and built up in me. You know why? Because you're not going to show fruit. Oh, will you do some things because you feel obligated? Oh yeah, you probably will. But I want you to see fruit. Jesus said, I'm come that you should see fruit and that your fruit should remain. Hey, are you planting your seed and letting it grow? Or are you picking it up and moving it from place to place because it's not developing fast enough for your liking? you got to let it grow, church. Even in those times when we don't understand and we look back and say, God, hurry up. Why aren't you working? And he says, I am. I'm just working underground and you can't see it. Hey. You and I don't have to see it. We just need him to do it. 
But that won't happen unless you're willing to let it grow. The inability, the inconsistency, and then lastly we see the independence. Jesus sees the crowd getting larger, speaks to the boy. We see the rebuke in verse 25 through 27. Jesus saw the people came running together. He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When Jesus speaks, the demons listen because they have no other alternative. Remember Mark chapter 5 and verse 7 when Legion ran up to him and fell down and worshipped him. Demon possessed man. And the demon spoke and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? He had no choice but to respond to God's son. He had no choice. But Jesus doesn't just command him and say, Hey, leave for today. He says, Don't ever come back. Hey, Jesus doesn't offer temporary relief to our problems. He offers total remedy from our problems. He offers peace that passes all understanding. He is our peace. And I'm sure this father felt like, man, Jesus just killed my son. It says that he literally looked like one that was dead. And then Jesus reached forth his hand and he stood up. Totally changed. Radically different. And the end result You go over to Luke chapter number 9, parallel passage, Luke 9, 42. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. See, when the people walked up, Satan was winning. But when they all walked away, Jesus had won. Think about it. When they all walked up, Satan was winning. Man, the disciples were discouraged. This man and all the scribes were pointing their fingers, pointing holes in the faith of the believers and followers of Jesus. Jesus walks up. This man says, I brought these, my son who's demon-possessed to your disciples. and They couldn't help me, so I brought him to you. You're my only hope. And when they all walked away, Jesus had proved that he was who he claimed to be because there was evidence of it. And in our lives, hey, are you waiting long enough to see the end of the story? Imagine somebody showing up that day and hearing the discourse between the man and the disciples and looking for the magic trick. And nothing happened. And then say, ah, and walking away before Jesus showed up. Are you waiting long enough for Jesus to show up? Are you waiting long enough to trust him that he will do what he said he'd do? We see the rebuke and then lastly we see the reproach. Verse 28 through 32. If I was the disciples here, if I was Peter and James and John, I'd be like, Whew. sure I'm glad we were with Jesus on the mount, man. <laughs> we didn't get our faith poked holes in, you know. But these others... In verse number 28, when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately. I wouldn't ask in public. Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? What is it? What did you do different? Tell us what you did. Tell us what you did. What's the magic ingredient? I love this. I've heard many preachers preach on this passage of Scripture and talk about all of the things about prayer and fasting. And you know, when Jesus says this kind coming forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And the emphasis that Jesus gives is not on these two activities. It's on the byproduct of these two activities. It's not tell us what to do. Hey, uh, teach us how to pray so that we'll get all this. No, no, no. Teach us how to fast. No, no, no. 
Jesus is teaching a valuable lesson. It's the lesson we all need to learn. It's all about total reliance on him. Why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? What was it? You remember when Jesus gave them power in Mark chapter number 6? And he sent them out two by two and said, you're going to get power. It's, it's kind of like this. They go out and thinking, man, all right, I don't know what we're getting ready to do, but Jesus said, so let's pray and let's ask him and let's trust him. And when it happened, they were amazed. How in the world? We just, Jesus just gave us authority to cast out demons, and we did. This is incredible. They were totally dependent on him. But watch this. They had gotten used to what he had done through them. To where they said, hey, you know, Jesus isn't here. We don't really need Jesus. We don't need him. Hey, he's not here. We're good. We can do this all on our own. And what was the end result? They couldn't do anything. You remember what Jesus said in John 15? We read it a minute ago. For without me, you can do nothing. He's not just talking about, hey, without me. He's not saying right here in the room. He's not saying without me right standing by your side. He's saying, guys, in your own power, your own ability, your own authority, you'll never do the things that I've given you influence to do. You have to have me. And it's the exact same thing we all have to learn. We can't do anything on our own. We have to have him. We can't have authority. We can't have power. We can't have influence. We have to have him. And if you've ever felt moments of frustration and you know, anger and anxiety and moments of defeat where you feel like I'm spinning my wheels, I'm doing all these things, and I'm seeing no result, maybe it's because you're trying to do it in your power instead of his. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's all you think, man, if I can do this, if I just do this... Pastor, tell me how to live for Jesus. I'll do every one of these things. What you need is a relationship with Jesus. Fall in love with Him. Love Him more and more every single day. Do whatever He leads you to do. Hey, that's not about a whole list of do's and don'ts. That's simply one thing. Love Him. And let out of that love, let service flow out of that love. Not out of obligation, but out of adoration. Remember Philippians 3? 13 and 14, Paul said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, hey, I, I'm not worried about all of those other things in my past. I'm worried about pursuing Him. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, just a few verses before, that I may know Him. The pursuit of my life is following him, is knowing him. And if you have to do one thing, one takeaway from this message, one thing. Say, Pastor, what's the one thing that I can do in my life that will allow me to see God work in a miraculous way? Follow him. Follow him. Wherever he leads, whatever he says, whatever he shows you, do it. Don't do what I say. Do what he says. Whatever he leads you to do. And don't allow the storms of life and the things around you to take your attention off the end result and the goal of following him. In 1952, a young Florence Chadwick stepped in the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim the shore to the shore of mainland California. It was 22 miles. And think about it. She's going to swim 
22 miles to get to California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel. Both directions, that's 21 miles, each way and touch the shore on both sides. She'd already done that. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that were paddling right beside her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water and brought into one of the boats, her mother, who was in the boat right next to her, said, You're close. You can make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half a mile away. In a news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Hey, this morning, it's easy for us to get caught up in the fog and to not keep eyes on the prize. It's easy for us to get consumed by the things that are around us, our circumstances, where we are, where we work, the season that I'm in, the situation I find myself in, and forget that Jesus is above us, watching over us and saying, hey, look at me, look at me. If you'll keep your eyes on me, don't look at the fog. Don't look at the storm. Don't look at the clouds. Look at me. Remember when Peter was walking on the water that night? What happened? He took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. If he would kept looking at Jesus, if he would kept looking at Jesus, hey church, if you'll keep looking at Jesus, if you'll keep your eyes on him, if you'll keep your focus on him, hey, don't let the fog consume your life. Keep your eyes on Him. Are you looking at the fog or are you looking at Jesus? Are you allowing the storm to take your attention? How about your service for Him? Are you focused on the fog or your ability to do what you know you can do, but you're not thinking about His ability to work through you? Which one is it? Are you allowing the fog of life to consume your mind and take your eyes off Him? Hey, Jesus is still standing there. He hasn't moved. Would you put your attention on him? Every head bowed, every eyes closed. Let me ask you this morning, very simple question. Has there been a time in your life where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Is Jesus your personal Savior? Has there been a moment when you can look back and you can recall calling out to him, asking him to save you? I remember as a 17-year-old boy, Realizing my spiritual need, growing up in church all my life, hearing the gospel over and over and over, sitting in countless services, and never applying what Jesus did to my heart and life. You and I don't become Christians by accident or by default. It takes a conscious decision, a moment in our life where we recognize our need and call out to Jesus for the answer to that need. And maybe that's this morning for you. The Bible says today, today, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not received him or watching online and you don't know that Jesus is your Savior. Would you simply take a moment, call out to him for salvation? Salvation is in three parts. It's knowing that you're a sinner, like the Bible says, and trusting that God has kept his word. It's knowing that Jesus died on the cross for that sin to pay your sin debt. And then it is asking him to forgive you. That's what it is. That's not... My words, that's God's word. You have to understand those three things. You can call on him 
and say whatever you want in between, but you need to understand those things, those elements, that you have a need and only Jesus can answer it. Have you done that? Maybe you're here this morning and He's leading you to take a step, whether that's baptism or service or membership or discipleship, whatever that looks like. Are you following Him? If you've not received Him, that is your priority today. But if you're not following Him as one of His children, that is your need. Would you simply in this moment when we're reflecting, we're asking Him to show us what He desires from us today. Would you simply talk to Him? We're going to sing in just a moment, but maybe just tell Him what your need is. Maybe you've got a fall going on in your life and you need help with. Our personal workers are already in the back. They would love to pray with you if you need somebody to support you, encourage you, pray with you, show you Scripture, whatever your need is. If you make a decision, you want somebody to follow up with you, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out, drop it off at one of the next steps tables, and somebody will reach out to you, pray with you. Whatever your need is, we want to try and help. Be a friend in your hour of need. Father, please do what only you can do in this time of invitation. Lord, your word is very clear that you desire a relationship with us. And Lord, that relationship should not be one-sided. Lord, help us to pursue, actively pursue, a relationship with you. And Lord, help us not to just be apathetic or one foot in, one foot out. Lord, help us not to be on again, off again with our relationship with Jesus. Help it to be serious. Help it to be a commitment on our part where we're actively pursuing you. Lord, for those who have trusted you as their personal Savior, help them to follow you. Lord, for those who need you today, please draw them to yourself. We love you. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for validating our worth by what you accomplished at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us, please. Little Tim's going to lead us in that song we sang just a little bit ago. If you need to come to the altar, the altar's